Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Josh Marshall podcast. Uh, we, you know, we've we got a we've got a lot to talk about on this episode. Uh, you know, a lot of things that are part of the current mix of watersheds and cataclysms that are sort of enveloping the country. I don't know how else to put it. Um, you know, there there's just uh, there are all these different things going on uh, that overlap, and they they just you know kind of. You've got the Dobbs decision. You've got the sort of the ongoing escalation of the January sixth uh, investigation, which is which is you know part of the you know a more positive part, as it were, of the unfolding you know crisis of 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 small d democratic governance in 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 this in this country, or when we're all barreling towards um, the midterm and. We have what I think that everyone can see now is a a watershed uh, Supreme Court uh, term. Obviously, everybody is 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 focused on Dobbs, but there's a lot of a lot there in addition to to Dobbs. But before we get to all that, and and you know, not to not to uh, put ourselves at, at at front and center, but I just wanted to, I want to thank everybody who contributed to our, our drive for the TPM Journalism Fund. You know, we've mentioned it in the last couple episodes, a really important drive for us. Um, we had a goal of raising $200,000, uh, which was a very ambitious goal. I, I had some, uh, you know, <laughs> some uncertainty whether we'd be able to get there, but we did get there. We got there yesterday. You know, the, the, the drive is still open if you'd like to contribute, but we, we, we hit the number we really needed to hit and, and we really appreciate it. Uh, just under 2,500 readers contributed. So thank you. We, 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 it means a lot to us and, uh, thanks. And, uh, so, uh, setting aside that good news, uh, we're going to get into the, into the rest of what we're talking about today. And, you know, just to get started, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about Dobbs, we're going to talk about the SCOTA, the uh, Supreme Court term, we're going to talk about, you know, uh, general issues about the unfolding battle over abortion rights in, in the country. But I wanted to, I wanted to press this point. Democrats, Democrats and abortion rights supporters are, are, largely the same people, but I'm talking about them kind of in different buckets in this sense, you know, in one, one through a partisan prism, one through supporters of a, a fundamental right about bodily autonomy in, in, in this, um, in this country. And, uh, both those groups have a really big opera as much as there is a danger. I mean, that we see all around us unfolding all around us. There's also this really big opportunity to turn the tables uh, and and shift everything around. And it's really, every everybody has it in their power right now to affect the outcome in what's happening here. And I've done a number of posts kind of talking about the importance of getting senators to, uh, to make this pledge 
that they are going to pass this law in January 2023. And you know, yesterday I got I got contacted by a few different, you know, groups asking like is is there a group out there that is that is organizing this? Who are they? How do we support them? You know, foundations, individuals, blah 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 blah. And there's kind of not. I mean, there's there's lots of groups, lots of organizations, lots of people doing lots of things right now, lots of activism, but I'm talking specifically about this pledge about a row law and changing the filibuster rules to allow uh, a law like that to get an up or down vote. And uh, you can you can affect this right now. Right now. This is the most consequential thing that individual citizens, individual voters, individual activists can do right now. Get senators to make this pledge. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about, you know, why exactly that pledge is important, how it works politically, how it works in policy terms, blah, 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 blah. I I did a post, I think yesterday about um, this is a critical path forward, uh, even if the Supreme Court wants to kind of go back in again and say, no, we are, you know, we're kind of, we're running the show on abortion rights in this country right now. And you can't touch us because we got six to three. So we're like the kings. There's no, there's no second guessing us. There's no overruling us. So yesterday I got an email from a reader out in California. And this reader uh, like many readers that I, I have discussed with you in the editor's blog over the last few weeks, uh, this reader called up uh, her two senators out in California, Senator uh, Padilla. You know, he's he's pretty much, yeah, you know, changed filibuster rules, row. You know, he, he's kind of, he's down with the whole with the whole plan. And in a lot of these calls, the voter, the TPM reader, will get a staffer who clearly uh, either is not familiar with the specifics of the issue that we're talking about, not that they're not familiar with abortion rights, but you know the specific issue of a, of a of a law and the filibuster, or they just haven't been authorized to really discuss it. And so, you know, it's still important to call because you want to make clear to senators that that their constituents really care about this. But in this case, this TPM reader called up Senator Feinstein's office, and it was interesting. And I'm going on the uh, the the reader's account as 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 she presented it to me in this email, that the staffer in Senator Feinstein's office said she totally supports and wants to vote for the Roe law. Okay, so what about the filibuster? Well, she's committed to discussing the filibuster, and the reader said, "Well, okay, <laughs> you know, is there something we need to discuss? Is is, is you know." Is, is there a live issue? Is, there, are there, is it more complicated than I'm thinking? What is there to discuss? And the staffer said, you know, clearly she has committed to discussing it. And this was very interesting to me because normally, again, if a staffer says, I, you know, they, they voted to change the filibuster rules on the voting rights thing. I know they're not crazy about the filibuster. That probably means they just have not been given guidance on this. So you absolutely should call, make, you know, kind of make it clear that voters, you know, care about this. But when they're vague, that doesn't necessarily mean that the senator has has given guidance to be vague. They just don't have anything they're at liberty to say or they haven't been given guidance. But in this case, it was clear at least on the basis of this TPM reader's account, and and um, I've been corresponding with this reader for a long time, so I I trust her account um, that they had been given guidance, and it was basically to, you know, kind of straddle the line, committing to discuss it. Well, that is exactly the kind of thing that it is important to get the commitments now to not deal with that kind of bullshit. Because what is there to discuss? That law will not happen under the current filibuster rules, no matter what the result of the election. Obviously, it won't happen if the Democrats lose their, lose their majority. But even if you know there's a, a Democratic victory beyond anybody's wildest expectations and the Democrats like pick up six seats, it still won't happen. It can't happen under the filibuster rules. So there's nothing to discuss. That's just, that's just kind of game playing and bullshit, basically. And it's not totally surprising to me to hear it from Senator Feinstein. 
Um, I would say there are, again, I'm very confident that with voter constituent pressure applied, 48 senators are ready to give that commitment. But but some of them are going to need to be pressed. And I would say, and I'm curious what my what my co-host Kate uh, thinks about this, that high on my list of those who may need some real pressing would be Senator Feinstein, Senator Angus King of Maine, who is an independent but caucuses with the Democrats, uh, possibly Senator Casey of Pennsylvania. Now, in those two cases, with Casey and King, they haven't said anything specifically about this that makes me think that they're just you know, kind of characterologically, uh, you know, King was one of the last holdouts to change filibuster rules for a voting rights law. Just that's just kind of where he is. He's he's one of these, you know, bipartisanship bringing everybody together. Uh, Senator Casey uh, comes from literally a family that is deeply tied up with pro-life politics, even though at this point he's, you know, by most definitions, he's he's pro-choice. Uh, but he might be. But in any case, this is what it's going to come down to. You need to get those people to say, yeah, I'm doing it in January 2023. We pick up those two seats. It's happening. You have my vote. It's doable, but it's going to take more pressure. And so I was, I was uh, in a way, I was gratified to hear about Senator Feinstein's office's reply, not because it was a reply that I liked, but at least they're paying attention now. You know, the sort the sort of uh, the the battle is engaged. They're knowing people are asking about it, and so this is their answer: commit to discussing it. Well, more pressure is required. From the ridiculous to the sublime, let me remind you: uh, the Josh Marshall Podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. As summer drags on, your daily iced coffee can start to taste a little flat. Spice things up and make the switch to Grady's New Orleans-style cold brew coffee. Whether you're a bourbon street pro, oh, this is the one with the word. I'm always afraid <laughs> I can't pronounce right. Uh, whether you're a bourbon street pro with beads to prove it, or you can't tell a beignet from a bagel, you'll love the way it tastes. Grady's captures the distinct flavor of New Orleans-style coffee by adding chicory to their coffee beans. Chicory has a light, natural sweetness that makes for a perfect cup of iced coffee that's rich, smooth, and never bitter. Ready to bring the rest? Ready to bring the best of the Big Easy home? Of course you do. Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, uh, Kate Riga, what's, what's, who's at the top of your list for the potential holdouts in the Senate? Yeah, I mean, I think the people you named are probably right. And I think, you know, the big kind of differentiation here is that you know, neither of us are saying that like Angus King is going to be like the third mansion cinema, you know, because Casey in particular has already kind of taken the big leap on this going from being kind of nominally anti-abortion to saying, you know, I would support the underlying bill that would protect abortion restrictions. So he's already kind of done the big scary thing for him. Um, I think it's just that a lot of the Senate is like, they are pack animals to some extent. Like you have some people, you know, you think of an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders, like those people are very comfortable with taking a different tone than the rest of the caucus with being more progressive on things than the caucus is. And obviously that is a rare thing because both of those people have run for president. You know, it, it raises people's profile, but majority of Democrats, they'll kind of have pet issues they're interested in, you know, especially ones that they're kind of serving on committees for. But a lot of them are just, you know, we're going to be good Democrats. We're going to be Democratic foot soldiers. And we're more or less kind of going to do what everyone else is doing. And that's just kind of how the body works. So even when we saw this and we were tracking here at TPM in depth, Um, where people stood on a filibuster carve out for voting rights. You know, we built a whole tracker. I was chasing people around the hill. We were looking at local reports and we put all this together. It's, it can be hard to get people, you know, on the record. And that one was especially hard because it was the first time we were talking about this in a specific way. But then when you do, you know, you kind of, you reach this point where it's like, and there's the shift. And now basically everybody is on, is singing from the same songbook. You know, it's just a, a matter of kind of, forcing that 
pressure forward until you reach the tipping point. And then it's like even the kind of institutionalists that are lumbering along in the wake of everyone else are like, all right, all right, you know, I'm here, I'll do it. You know. Yeah. And 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 I think that is just for for, for listeners, that's really what an exercise like this is all about. Because another issue, and this is probably not always clear from the outside, another big, big holdup is like, for instance, you didn't see, um, uh, maybe you did, but I doubt it. You didn't see Elizabeth Warren say, Diane, what the fuck? I need your commitment tomorrow, you know, or, or else whatever. And I'm not just picking on Warren. I mean, a lot of a lot of uh, progressive senators who are totally down on the line on this. They don't. It is it is sort of um, it's poor etiquette internal to the Senate to put everyone else on the spot. You're not seeing like you're not seeing you know two or three progressive senators you know kind of hold a little press conference and say um, you know here's the pledge, here's the pledge we're making about January 2023. Who of my colleagues is going to join us and who's going to be left out? They just don't do that. And like, you know, they, they're, you know, think of your workplace. We're not necessarily trying to put your coworkers on the spot, but, you know, as we've said in other contexts, no one asks you to be senator, right? You know, <laughs> things are too bad. Um, and what we are, what we are specifically trying to do here, or what I'm trying to do here is to get it away from what Kate is rightly describing, where everybody's kind of like, eh, you know, yeah, I got it, but the caucus isn't quite there yet. But and 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 for but for voters, for constituents, like, what is the caucus? There's no caucus. There's 48 people, and you're making it really hard for me to know where the where the holdup is. So what you want to do, as if you care about this issue, is get 45 people signed up, get pledges. And then you say, okay, you three, it's you. You're the problem. When are you gonna when are you going to let this happen? And then they'll fold, but you need to get there. And I think the other problem is just that the Senate are like the ultimate college kids during finals in that they're just so reactive. It is so hard to get the Senate to be proactive about anything. And in this case, we're asking them to proactively stake out a position months before what we know what the composition of the Senate will look like next term. And there is just this really natural and inherent kind of lawmaker aversion to putting yourself out there before you've got all the other factors cemented and solidified in place. You know, you're afraid of putting your neck out if something might change. And I think that is also kind of an, a, a piece that's going on here that, in, you know, encourages them to give answers like Feinstein's. Yeah, no, it's 100%. That That is, you know, why why would I reduce my freedom for maneuver. Mm -hmm, I don't know what exactly. I don't know what world we're going to be living in in January 2023. So why am I going to kind of, you know, kind of commit myself to this very specific thing when who knows what's happening then? And, you know, from their point of view, yes, you're reducing their freedom of action. But again, no one asked no one said you had to be senator. Mm -hmm. No one said you had to be senator. Yeah, and a piece of this that we were discussing um before we started recording, and I think segues well to another thing we want to talk about is just the importance of feeling like there's something that you can do if you are, you know, a Democratic voter who's quite alarmed by what the court is doing. And obviously there is nobody has any control over the court, basically, unless the Senate can like pull itself together to change the body itself. So I think there's been this real feeling of powerlessness among Democrats in general, especially because a lot of the biggest action people can take would be voting in the midterms. And, you know, that's not immediate. That's not necessarily super satisfactory. And, and in the moment when people are feeling really upset, but something like this which senators do care about, you know, obviously Senate offices get calls all the time. But as a former intern, if there's one thing I can say, it's like a lot of them are just kooky and like disregarded. You know, a lot of them are kind of you've got just some people who call constantly. But when there is like a concerted effort to make calls in the same vein on the same point, I mean, that does get noticed. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. And 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 to Kate, I, I think you were referring to this, you know, a lot of right now, again, danger and opportunity at the same time. And people have 
a lot of fear and a lot of anger. And that gets vented in all sorts of different directions, all of which are understandable, some of which are productive, others are not. And one of the things I hear sometimes, and it's it's a delicate balance because like I, because I care about this and because I write opinion pieces, I want these senators to feel the pressure. At the same time, you know, I will hear from people, you know, I, 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 I kind of dinged Senator Durbin a few days ago. And people will, will, will write in and say, what is his problem? Why does he not care about this? Why is he, why is he dragging his feet? And, you know, I, I don't know Dick Durbin, but I know the type. He cares about this. He definitely cares about this. The issue is not that they don't care about this or other issues. They live, it's, they live in Senate world. That's really the, that's really the issue. And, and to Kate's point, you know, you get questions about this. You give one answer, you give another answer, and it kind of bubbles up, and suddenly they're on a Sunday show. And, you know, George Stephanopoulos or Jake Tapper says, hey, I hear your constituents want you to make this pledge. What, what's the deal there? And then you, you know, then you get moving. It's a, it's a process. But you've got that fireball of fear and anger, and really the challenge for everybody is how do you tether that to a productive outcome? And we've got one a few months away. You know, do you, do you channel that into an electoral outcome? And that's, you know, what a lot of us are, are trying to do. Yeah. So in the same vein, let's talk about in Kansas, they're having a vote in the August primaries on an amendment to the state constitution that would basically nullify a 2019 uh, state Supreme Court decision where the court found that the state constitution protects the right to abortion in Kansas. And so this amendment would say, you know, that's not true. Constitution doesn't protect abortion. There is no need for government funding for abortion. And the legislature is basically free to legislate on abortion however they may choose. Let me, let me ask a, t- a technical question here. With this amendment, does it amend the Constitution or just kind of say as a statement, Supreme Court's wrong about this and therefore that decision doesn't count? It does amend the Constitution. It does. Okay. So it basically says, no, no, anybody who says that there's a a kind of an amorphous right, that's not right. Right. The Constitution, no right. Okay. Got it. Exactly. Um, And, you know, some of you may be wondering, why would this vote be coming up during the August primaries? You know, because the state, like all the other states, is having a general in November where there are some, you know, fairly big ticket races on the ballot, including, you know, Laura Kelly's up for re-election, the Democratic governor who kind of won in an upset. So people are really gunning for her, um, you know, even though the, the Senate seat is not competitive, that's on the ballot. But, you know, it's funny. Some of these states like a Kansas, on the one hand, they're very Republican. I mean, Kansas literally since its inception, 170 years ago or whenever, was um, a very Republican state. And yet, since it's so Republican, it's kind of it, it. It's not pulled in to a lot of the national polarization stuff, and paradoxically, that sometimes gives some room for some movement that wouldn't uh, be possible in other in other states. You know, Utah is kind of like that, right? It's so Republican that they can. There's some kind of freedom of maneuver there because no one's thinking that like, oh, it's a purple state. It's going blue. Right. You know, they don't have to fight that battle. Right. And I mean, I think that creates a very acute fear in Kansas because they do this like one big uh, one of the universities there does this one big annual, uh, you know, kind of policy preference poll. And in the 2021 poll, they asked about abortion and, you know, 50 percent of the respondents said they didn't approve of government restriction of abortion. I mean, a lot of the attitudes in the poll kind of mirror general American attitudes, which I think people are still pretty unaware of that, you know, it's been true since since Roe was first decided that the majority of Americans have always supported abortion access. The thing is, the anti-abortion contingent just cares about it a lot more than other people. So we hear about their side way more than we hear about kind of the median position. But so in Kansas, there has been this kind of long battle to get this amendment question 
during primaries where they know people don't show up. And it started in 2020. And that attempt to put it on the August ballot instead of the November one failed because some moderate Democrat or moderate Republicans joined in with Democrats saying, I don't like this. You know, this is not it's not democratic. This isn't a good way to hear from uh, what Kansas Kansans really think. It failed. Then we have the 2020 elections where all of a sudden a bunch of said moderates get swept out either on their own volition or by the voters will. And now all of a sudden we have a much more conservative legislature and boom, now the election is slated for August, which, you know, in Kansas, the usual kind of primary election we're seeing somewhere in the low to mid 20s. And then the usual general in non-presidential years is around 50 and presidential years can go as high as 70. I mean, and the calculus is obvious because you just get a different type of voter for primary elections than you do for general, which is that all the kind of low propensity voters, which tend to be young voters, minority voters, moderates and independents, those people drop off during the primary. So you're just left with kind of the hardcore partisans. And for Republicans, that means the hardcore conservatives who feel very strongly in the anti-abortion camp. So that was kind of this whole strategy to get it during this time when not a lot of people would show up and the people who did would probably support the amendment. And now all of a sudden, we're living in a world where abortion is the national headline. It's like the biggest leading issue and the primary is a month out. So it's this weird world where there was all this manipulation to make sure that this amendment passes. And now all of a sudden you have Johnson County and Sedgwick County reporting jumps in voter registrations and fielding all these calls from people. And then you have the League of Women Voters saying our membership is skyrocketing. And you have the coalition against the amendment saying all these people are calling and want to help and lawn signs are going like hotcakes. And it's just, it's a different world than it was even a couple months ago. Yeah. I mean, one thing, you know, we we tend to think, we, we know that there are well, I was going to say half the states, red and blue states, it's actually not, maybe it, closer to half the population by states, it's, there are many more red states just be, for all the reasons, for all the reasons we know. And because we are used to thinking in terms of partisan identification, you might think, well, you know, in the red states, obviously they're going to be, you know, they're going to be very anti-abortion. Well, not really. Not really. Uh, the, you know, support for Roe, depending on, you know, there's, there's different permutations that you can ask the question. That generally runs anywhere from 60 to upwards of 70% wanting Roe to stay in place. So overwhelming opposition to Dobbs. Um, and like, for instance, you know, I, I haven't seen, I haven't seen a poll, a specific poll in Kansas. I guess Kate was referring to one, one earlier, you know, who knows what, what it is in Wyoming or Idaho, but there was one, there was a poll in Texas, uh, in the last week or so. Um, and Texas Texans oppose Dobbs, you know, it, it is, uh, abortion is one of these, it is one of the ideal case political issues in which it overwhelmingly plays to the anti-democratic features of our political system. Uh, you know, we, we know that um, rural voters, sort of ex-urban and rural voters, uh, punch well above their weight. In individual states, the rural, the more rural states are more blah, 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 blah. blah. Um, so, you know, could it win in Kansas? Sure. But will it? I'm not so sure, especially because, you know, the uh, pro-abortion rights advocates are very gunned up right now. I think it's such a success of the anti-abortion movement that these statistics are surprising to us, you know, even to those of us who follow abortion closely, because they really have just been very successful in making it feel like half the country is virulently anti-abortion and half is very in favor of it. When the reality is and has always been that the majority of Americans support abortion with some limitations, like stuff like late term abortion freaks people out, even though I really I, I continue to think people have not thought that through because what what person would want to get an abortion after carrying a child for seven months? It just it doesn't make a lot of sense, which is why almost all late term abortions are sad and wanted children who and, you know, health issues and all those kind of really depressing stories. But, you know, the point being that 
the anti-abortion contingent has just made this small, super passionate, super vocal minority seem much larger than it is. Now, is it the case? I thought that the that Roe, when it was first decided, was actually in a conflict with national public opinion at the time. But I may well be wrong on that. And and obviously, I think to a certain extent, it wasn't what I what I do know is that abortion was not not only was it not um, you know partisan polarized even as a question I mean over half a century now we all know the basics you know what trimester what are the exceptions all this kind of stuff or where it was in the in the mainstream political dialogue um, a lot a lot vaguer. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't kind of in these in these really clearly, uh, you know, delineated sort of you know hot, hot button questions. What what, mm-hmm. what what can you share with us about that? Yeah, I mean that's my understanding as well. It even you know it goes to the point of the self sorting into parties. You know, it used to not be the a, a Republican supporting abortion rights and a Democrat not used to be a much more common position, which has now gone all but extinct, you know, um, with Casey being kind of the one of the last holdouts on the Democratic side. And then, you know, you still have Collins and Murkowski supporting abortion rights, you know, in name, um, if not enough to actually get them passed. Um, But I think it's just become so hot button because the anti-abortion movement has this whole arsenal of like messaging at their fingertips that they've used really well. And it's funny because in Kansas, the anti-amendment coalition put up this ad where they never mention the word abortion. It's basically oppose this amendment that would let the government control your life, that would let the government control your health care and your medical decisions. And They've really just tried to kind of hang on that message of this is big government, this is government intrusion and personal decisions and stayed away from the word abortion, which even though we know that most people support it, it's just got all these connotations that they think works against them. So they are focusing on this kind of independence stance, which again, like a libertarian I think, kind of exactly, yeah, which goes yeah, back to what yeah. you were saying before, I think about these red states having some wiggle room in that. You, we do see this in some red states where the kind of older ideals of conservatism are still more alive than they are in kind of the National Republican Party. So this idea of, you know, independence, keep your government out of my bedroom, that kind of stuff is more of a live ball, I think, on the state right. level than it is in the increasingly authoritarian national party. I think at least I may be wrong about this. You know, uh, Barry Goldwater, sort of the original standard bearer, certainly the first presidential nominee of, of the modern conservative movement. I think he was pro-choice. I could be wrong about that. Um, he at least over the course of his, over the course, I mean, he ran for president as a relatively young man and then had, you know, I think uh, a good 25 years longer um, in in the Senate or when he returned to the Senate. Um, and over time, his more libertarian politics came a little more to the fore. I think he was fairly pro-gay rights eventually. So that used to be a much more a, a much more viable thing. I mean, it's 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 worth remembering that the, you know the Supreme Court that wrote, you know, that I don't say passed Roe, that handed down Roe was dominated by Republican appointees. You know, we're still kind of all caught in this idea that um, liberals created a really super liberal Supreme Court and it did all these things and then it did Roe and it took, you know, took Republicans generations to sort of undo that when in fact, and I think there may have even been as many as three Nixon appointees. Um, on that court, I don't remember. I'm, I'm a little could be off on that, but there were. Mo- I think there were maybe two. There were, and there were still, you know, Eisenhower uh, uh, appointees. In any case, back then, the idea, like, oh, Republican, very, you know, very, very anti-abortion. That just wasn't the case. This was sort of like, you know, it was a. Uh, uh, you know, kind of mainline Republican thing. Of course, you know, it's you. You have to make it legal, you know. Obviously, at the, at the at the time, there was a it was 
more front and center in a way that women are having these abortions. You have to make it at least safe. You know, you don't want, I mean, we're going to see that again now Mm -hmm. since it's going to be illegal in a lot of places. In any case, a very different politics in the past. Yeah. I mean, and the other thing I want to mention about Kansas before we move on is some of the kind of like perniciousness and scheduling this during August is not just, you know, primaries are low turnout. People aren't paying as much attention as they are during generals. But also there's a huge chunk of Kansas voters that are unaffiliated. There are more, you know, quote unquote, unaffiliated voters in Kansas than there are Democrats. And those people are almost never have anything to vote for in the partisan primaries because, you know, they can't vote for the Republican nominees or the Democratic nominees. So this ballot vote is like the one thing that they could turn out and vote on. Right, Um, right. Right. So it's, you know, it's just so such an uphill climb for the opposition to the amendment, because not only do they have to be like, hey, pay attention, there's an election in August in like the sleepiest time in the summer where no other race is competitive. But also you who might have lived in Kansas your whole life and been a high propensity voter, but you don't vote in primaries because you're an independent you can vote on this one, you know? So there's just, you have to also change voter behavior, which is historically the hardest thing. I mean, in a lot of ways, this election reminds me of, do you remember that 2017 special election with Karen Handel and John Ossoff that we kind of mentioned recently? But it was the first kind of big, yeah, after Trump, it was like the first thing that you could do anything about if you were a Democratic voter who was so upset about Trump. And I think- I'm sure the record's been broken since, but I think it was like the most competitive or uh, expensive house race we'd seen because the donations were just flooding in from every state because people wanted well, to do something. It may well still be because yeah. e- even though it, you know, uh, the numbers go up every cycle, that was, as you say, that was, you had, uh, you know, <laughs> I was going to say half the country, actually a majority of the country, totally shell-shocked by the result of the, mm-hmm. of the election and, you know, angry, scared looking for okay what can i do besides yelling at my tv and 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 you know crying in my pillow and well yep. okay here's where you can here's where you can sort of register your feelings and this this you know this might what is the actual date in august the second all right so basically less it's like three and a half weeks from now right less than a month and the thing about the the ossoff handle thing is you know he lost and people were like this is the bellwether. You know, this shows that Trump backlash is not a strong enough electoral force to undo the Republican dominance. You know, all of this stuff got mapped onto this one race, which is, you know, this happened in Georgia. You know, Georgia is not the easiest state to vote in on purpose, you know, and it happened in a weird off cycle where, you know, people who are politically invested were very invested. But again, we're talking about the part of the electorate that you always have to motivate and that doesn't really pay attention to this stuff. And in that way, they're just, I feel a lot of parallels to this Kansas thing because it's like we have all these signs of enthusiasm. But the question that we don't know and that we won't know until after the election is, is this enthusiasm coming from people who were already plugged in and now they're just super amped and are like calling up these places and saying, you know, how can I volunteer on top of their already plans to vote? Or is this coming from people who otherwise wouldn't have been engaged? It's just, it's really hard to know the answers to those questions until we see the vote. And again, like in 2017, it's just, we're seeing this case where you've got a lot of enthusiasm versus a lot of deeply cynical attempts to manipulate the vote and make sure that the Republicans have the voter pool that'll give them the greatest chance of success. Isn't, you know, in that, and, and, you know, you mentioned that, that Ossoff lost, but that is a, it, it is a, it is a, an apt parable of how politics works because Handel, who beat him, then lost uh, the seat to, is it Lucy McBath? I'm, yep. Yeah, Lucy McBath um, lost that seat. And John Ossoff, three and a half years later, he won a Senate seat. So, you know, you, you, don't, you, don't know, uh, you don't know the story at the beginning, you know, in the first chapter. It took a, right. it took a while to play out. And you make a good point that it's very, it's, it is, you know, one of the things I've been kind of railing at recently is that chorus of people saying, oh, don't just tell me, you know, just vote. Voting doesn't matter. You know, blah, blah, all that, all, all that kind of stuff. And it is easy to get the idea that the sometimes voters are just 
disenchanted and tuned out and stuff like that. And a lot of them are, but it's not them you're hearing about when it's saying, uh, you know, don't tell me just, you know, just vote or vote harder because the people who are tuned out aren't yammering about this on Twitter. Yeah. Right. I mean, by definition, that's what being tuned out is. They're tuned out. They're not there to kind of taunt you about their non-participation. They don't care. They're done. You need to bring them back in. And and in this sense, you also don't know, you know, is it, as Kate said, is it the people who are saying they're totally pumped, the people who still voted last time, but were just less pumped? Right. You know, and it's, it's just, it's hard to know. It's hard to know on yeah. both sides. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll be watching that, but just a preemptive beware the bellwether takes that root themselves in an election in Kansas that was specifically curated to be as undemocratic as possible and to keep people from participating. Yeah. That, that's right. my so warning. Yeah. What do we what do we have next? Yeah, I was going to say maybe we should briefly cover the EPA case that came down post um, our last pod in this our kind of wrap up of the disastrous Supreme Court term corner. Yeah. So this EPA case um, that came out on the last day of term, and it was basically about uh, the ability of the EPA to regulate, you know, greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. And the whole case, we've been watching this at TPM for like many months because it was so strange from the beginning. It was based on this coalition of red states and coal companies who were bringing up the clean power plan, which is an Obama era program and arguing that this plan, which is defunct, no longer on the books, you know, got replaced by a Trump program, which has since been knocked down by the D.C. Circuit Court, but that that program was outside of the EPA's power, that they would not have theoretically had the power to enforce that program, which is no longer on the books. So pretty much ever since the court took that case up, all these, you know, climate lawyers and environmentalists were like, "Uh oh, I mean, the only reason to take up this case is if you want to mess with the EPA's authority, basically. Right. And then we watched the oral arguments and there weren't a lot of good indicators which the way they were going to go because the oral arguments were so focused on the weirdness of this case with the liberals being like, what's your standing? What are you injured by? There's no there's no program that we're fighting over. And the Biden administration even said, hey, we're going to put in a new rule. Why don't you wait till we put that out and then we can fight about it then, you know, but the court said no. And then we finally got the opinion written by Roberts um, that it's so stupid. It basically says that the EPA can regulate in small ways, but not in big ways. And it's like premised on the major questions doctrine, which is this made up theory that if something has big economic, social, political ramifications, Congress must have been very explicit in giving the agency the power to do that thing. And so what it came down to in this case was differentiating basically between what they call inside and outside the fence regulations, inside being kind of plant by plant regulations, outside being things that affect across the grid, which the clean power plant would have may like nudge the transition to cleaner sources of energy. And as I think Kagan wrote such a good dissent, but she also during oral arguments was like, we know this makes no sense, right? You could put coal out of business by doing plant by plant regulations. And then you could do really, you know, small bore changes across the grid. Like these two differentiations are just silly. You know, they're nonsensical. And it's mostly just because the coal companies and the red states needed to have something they were arguing for that's not just, we want you to take this opportunity to give the EPA less power, if you please. So that's Isn't kind of that, how, it, how it ended up. I'm surprised. I mean, you know, very little about that this court does surprises me, but that is an example that normally that's just, you can't do that. You, you don't, you, you know, you, you need to have a live issue to, right. to, um, I mean, the whole, the whole premise of judicial review is that someone has a claim, you know, I was damaged in this way. You took this away from me. You did that. And I say, that's not fair. And there, and then you get a precedent that, you know, you have a decision and a precedent that then, you know, sort of changes the law going forward. But as you say, in this case, if it's done, there, there's, what is, there's not a thing. There's no, there's nothing to discuss. And yet what was, what was, what was the court's rationale for 
getting past that hurdle of of why they why they didn't just say there's nothing at issue here. You need to come back when there's something at issue. Yeah, I mean, it was silly. Roberts basically was like, well, it's not realistic to say that these coal companies won't and the states that house them won't be constrained by, you know, similar policies in the future. And then would kind of quote like EPA statement saying, or talking about the need to transition to cleaner energy sources, you know, as kind of like it's a big looming threat. But I mean, like you say, that's not our legal system doesn't work in a preemptive way, right, um, right. which is it just made this such a forum for just kind of a general expression of hostility to agency power. You know, Neil Gorsuch takes his little victory lap in his concurrence, whose mother was an EPA administrator under Reagan, who, you know, kind of bragged about gutting the agency and uh, slashing its budget and getting in fights with all of the kind of career EPA people. But his whole thing is just talking about how listing all the recent blows to agency power that the court did and talking about major questions and saying, you know, we are just putting the power back in the people's representative. That's a democracy, babe. Get used to it. You know, and it was just this kind of full fledged glowing sign that says, bring your agency challenges to us. We will make sure they succeed. Now, isn't how much of this? How much of this case? I mean, one of the arguments that now, and I don't know. It it sounds like this came down on some on some different questions, different doctrines. But one of the arguments about about CO two emissions from a regulatory you know review standpoint is people say, look, you're talking about laws from the 1970s mm-hmm. when, or you know, in many cases, 1970s when people were talking about you know dirty stuff in the air. You're talking about pollution, acid rain, uh, you know, the, 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 the river near your paint plant lights on fire a couple times a year. No one knew about climate change. No one knew that CO2 was an issue. So you can't just have a law that says this, this agency is just the environmental cop and they just decide going forward what they're going to work on. Now, mm-hmm. on its face... If, if you, you know, I think, you know, one of the other arguments is kind of like, this is pressing. Let's not make it harder than it needs to be. But on its face, you know, there's some logic to that, you know, and, and, and I think all of this comes down to that the EPA is not, or the government is not being barred from things. It's how many things that it wants to do, Congress needs to specifically authorize. So how much of it was that kind of, hey, 1970 laws, 1970s laws, you know, pre-global warming, pre-knowledge about global warming, how much of it turned on that? Yeah, well, a big part of the fight was kind of about the specific part of the Clean Air Act, which is still basically like the most powerful environmental regulation we have because Congress won't pass anything else. Um And it's like the specific kind of section that is very broad, that's kind of written in there to be like, and everything else. You know, it reminds me of when I went to confession when I was a little kid and I used to be like lying to my mom, you know, fighting with my sibling and anything else I forgot to just like cover me in case I forgot some sins. And so it's like that. And Roberts basically says he calls it a backwater, you know, like you can't depend on this part of the law uh, to, to back up your regulations. And Kagan's like, yeah, you can. That's how this works. You know, a broad writ of authority is not an invalid writ of authority. It's especially with environmental laws. It's meant to kind of cover a a changing, amorphous world where even in the 70s, people knew that things were going to change and look different and technologies advance so quickly in that field. And that is kind of how it's always worked. You know, these somewhat broad laws from Congress that you leave it to the agencies to fill in the details. Um, And a lot of this case turned on, you know, this specific phrase of uh, to, to stem emissions, you know, with the best means possible. And that kind of like those best means that's left to the EPA to decide and people who are familiar with climate change technologies. Um, so this case didn't end up coming down as horribly as some climate people feared because they thought that the court could stop the Supreme Court or could stop the EPA from regulating CO2 in general, which would have been, you know, catastrophic. And this um, is this inside the fence, outside the fence yeah, distinction? Yeah, okay. it basically says you can't do that much big stuff to regulate power plants, which again, bad. I mean, this is a the crisis of our time, but relatively not as bad as people expected. And what's more is just kind of setting the table to do this 
all the time to to be able to kind of pick and choose phrases in the laws and be like, well, that's not specific enough. And then you're kind of like, how specific is specific enough? And since they're working off these doctrines that are basically made up to fit their kind of policy outcomes, there is none, you know, and they know as well as anyone else that Congress is not going to pass major climate legislation anytime soon. So that any any of this attempt to be like, we're shifting the power back to Congress. I mean, it's bullshit. They're putting they're shifting that power to themselves away from agencies. And that's the only transference of power that's happening here. Yeah. I mean, the, the, to kind of, you know, dig back into this, you know, one of the, the issue with the EPA is that, you know, as you say, Congress wrote it really broad and clearly knowing they were writing it really broad and th- that the court has kind of come back, going, well, do we really know they meant to have it be super broad. And, you know, the, from a, again, from a sort of a lofty conceptual perspective, it seems to me that there, one could make an argument, look, Congress is not at liberty to just say, we're creating this agency and kind of like, do whatever you think makes sense. That that's just not, that is just not legit. Congress has the responsibility to sort of make laws to do specific things and not just sort of, you know, sign it over to the executive branch in in perpetuity for the future. But it seems like in this case, they didn't exactly make that argument. It was more kind of like, oh, this is this is so vague. I we this is what do we what do we do with this? It was impossible to know what they meant. When in fact, we, we kind of do know what they meant. They did they did that thing that maybe you shouldn't be allowed to do. Just say, keep things clean, folks. You know, <laughs> figure mm-hmm. it out as you go along. I can, under- totally. I, can, I can understand the argument of saying, hey, big decisions Congress should make. This is a big decision. Congress should make this decision. Don't leave it up to that we had a kind of an acid rain law from 50 <laughs> years ago and, and we've decided this is the new important thing. But it does seem like they didn't, for whatever reason, they they were not ready to kind of go that path. They left it of, oh, this is just so vague. We can't we can't know what they meant sort of yeah, thing. Right. I mean, they dabbled in it a bit and kind of that's what a lot of Gorsuch's section is about. Just making that argument, the the shifting the power back to Congress argument without without facing the reality that Congress is, you know, all but non-functional right now. So, and, and he knows it. And the other piece of this case is that we're seeing the Supreme Court completely switch tax when it comes to kind of how it's upholding or shooting things down. Because in our, our recent big cases, you know, Dobbs and Guns, right? Not, not cases of agency power, but cases where they basically said, all of our decision is rooted in history. And that's where we're deriving uh, the ability of this constitutional right to stand and this uh, licensing gun scheme to stand, whether or not they had historical analogs. And then in this case, they're kind of switching over to the Federalist Society major questions thing and, and talking about that instead. And one thing I kind of love that Kagan does in her dissent is she has this little historical section where she talks about how from the founding, you know, Congress has always delegated a lot of power to agencies. And in its earliest days, those things, you know, were about Indian affairs and federal courts and and big, big questions at the time were kind of given to this branch. And I just thought that was such um, a little a little sly poke to be like, yeah, I know we're, we're we've decided apparently that history isn't important in this case, even though it was the sole determiner of these other cases. But by the way, this is how you know the country was set up to work. So well, it's funny that you know a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff that we are talking about now, and and these, I mean, as a general matter, a lot of the re- you know business cares about the big regulatory stuff. That's mm-hmm. that's where they live, and 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 that's where they really fight over things. There, you get these very esoteric, you know, Federalist Society, um, U.S. Chamber of Congress doctrines of fences and little things yep. and big things and the doctrine of big things and all this kind of stuff. Um, and they are there's there is much less effort 
to say, look right here in, in Federalist 51, where Madison talks about the big things doctrine. Don't tell us this wasn't there at the beginning. They're just kind of supposedly logical principles, blah, 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 blah. Whereas it's the kind of the red meat stuff that, you know, on abortion and guns where you get, you know, kind of, you know, full on history. You know, mm-hmm. it's all it's all about history. And it's actually, it is reminiscent of, you know, there's a whole other period in the court's history. And I won't get into the jargon and and phrases about it, but basically late 19th century, early 20th century, where the Supreme Court decided that the Constitution is really all about uh, the right to contract. I can sign a contract with you, and that's just it, and no one can do anything. And that was, th- that was first of all, why unions weren't okay, because it's, you know, it's, it's a constraint on people's ability to freely contract with one another. And it was also why most regulations weren't okay. And this was all made up. I mean, there's, there's, there is some stuff about, about contracts and commerce in the Constitution. But the whole late 19th century, early 20th century thing was just, just, just kind of made up, you know, deciding that's, what, that's really what it's all about. And it was, it, was about, um, it was basically about constraining, preventing everything we now know as progressive era and New Deal era legislation. Um, so, you know, this is, uh, this, is, this is nothing new under the sun. And again, when, you, when, it's, when it's big on, uh, you know, brainy people from University of Chicago and doctrines and all this kind of stuff and low on history, you know, that's when you know it's the, it's the business folks. Exactly. Getting the stuff they need. Yep. That's, that's the handy court watcher's guide to yes. who exactly is uh, putting the pressure on for this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So let's end with a question. This is from Frank who says uh, he knows that you've been arguing for Democrats to break the filibuster in the next election, pass a row law and state abortion restrictions. Um, but I'm not sure this will be good enough. The Supreme Court could simply rule the federal law to abortion unconstitutional. Um this would definitely tempt Democrats to pack the court, but that seems like a tougher hill in terms of Senate votes. Uh, and then asks, uh, you know, is he wrong in in kind of making this prediction? Well, you know, I did a I did a post on this. I think it was yesterday, where I where I, I've been I've been addressing this question in dribs and drabs here and there, and I wanted to put it all in one place. And basically, so you know, if you want the long version, go look at that post. Uh, we're recording this uh, Wednesday, July 6th. It would have been a, a July 5th post. Um, basically, I think the, the threat of that is overstated. I don't think it is as likely in the short term as people think. But yes, it is a very real threat and an even more real threat over time. Uh, the key is you cannot right now you do not have support a constituency for the kind of things that the congress can do to rein in the supreme court it's not just at attacking justices the congress can simply remove appellate jurisdiction from the court over whole issues you don't even need to kind of do things with with justices you can just say you know what this issue it's not your issue anymore we're taking it off your plate uh that's that is, there's not a lot of precedent for that, um, but it is bright letter law in the Constitution. There's zero question it can be done. The key is that it's one thing for the court to say, there's no right to an abortion. That's made up. This is up to the political process. It is quite another thing to say Congress cannot legislate on this. It cannot make this legal. That is both politically and legally a much, that's a very different thing. The scenario we are talking about here, if all of this, if any of this happens, it will be a scenario in which the Supreme Court comes down with his Dobbs Dobbs decision. There is a big backlash. On the basis of that backlash, the party that seemed like the sure loser turns out to win the midterm election. On the basis of that backlash then passes a law making abortion legal nationwide. And then the Supreme Court comes along and says, nope, we have six to three and too bad. We, we run the country. If you are looking for a way to build support and build a constituency for reigning in the Supreme Court, nothing will get you there more effectively than that chain of events happening. So whether 
whether or not you think that the court just won't go down that path of summarily striking down a Roe law, or if you think they do, it's still the best and really only path for fixing this issue, regardless of which of those two things happen. So that's, that's my answer. Yes, could they strike it down? Absolutely. I think they'll be a little more hesitant for the reasons that I said. Um, and what, you know, what people need to put over the court, we have a runaway Supreme Court right now, a corrupt runaway Supreme Court. And uh, a lot of people have created this idea that the Supreme Court is the final say. You know, they can, at the end of the day, they make the decisions. In the constitutional system, no one has the final say. President can be removed from office. Uh, president's vetoes can be overridden. President can ignore Congress on things. No one is no one is absolute. So we're in this we're in this kind of broader struggle. And what what the Congress or the majority needs to do is kind of put the court on notice. You can be you can be defanged. So give some thought to how you abuse your power. So anyway, that's that's my answer. Short term, not as big a risk as people think, but a very real risk. But even if they do it, this is still the right path to go down. It reminds me of some many months ago, we were talking about an executive action idea of some sort. And I remember we were saying, like, let the Supreme Court be the bad guy. You know, I mean, if they're and I think it applies here, too, if they're going to knock it down, then fine. I mean, the Oh, the thrust of preserving our democracy right now kind of rests on people getting mad enough at the Supreme Court that there becomes energy for reforms among lawmakers. But yep. just the kind of the notion of like, well, you know, they shouldn't pass it at all because it might get blocked is like, oh, my God, talk about a, a loser's mentality, like at the very least get caught trying and then yeah. let the entity that is actively corrupt and kind of destroying the democracy let them take the heat for it yeah absolutely i mean and 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 it you know it's that that it is such a demoralized loser's mentality and you know it's almost like ugh, why fight to lose the election the other the other party might just win the one after that right <laughs> like okay you know yeah uh, the life is not one thing that's 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 life and and what you you know what you see one of the things that uh you know we talked about at the at the top of the episode that one of the things that democrats are dealing with right now is there's so much anger so much fear and it it's easy for people to uh vent that on the democrats and some of that venting they deserve but you're creating if you if you basically just say, hey, anything we can do, they might do something too. So we're just going to like do nothing. That is a way to sort of just blow yourself up as a, as, as a political force. Yes. If the Supreme Court's going to do that, make it clear they're the ones doing it. Don't sit on your hands because of what they may do in the future. Right. And again, it's not just a matter of kind of like, you know, make, make them take the blame. Make them take the blame creates a political path for changing the situation. It's pretty basic. Yeah. I mean, it feels like the same conversation that always swirls around the filibuster. You know, people will say, well, if Democrats get rid of the filibuster, you know, what's to stop Republicans from, you know, passing a nationwide abortion ban? And it's like, they can do that anyway. I mean, the, the only difference is that Democrats, thanks to Manchin and Cinema, have basically now squandered their opportunity to like pass a ton of meaningful legislation before their power is endangered and Republicans might take over. And it's just that same, you know, it all goes that same idea of like, well, what they do might not last. So it's not worth doing. It's like, yes, it's still worth doing. Also, None of us have proved very adept at like predicting the political future in this country of late. So maybe we should just get out of that industry and encourage people to do what they can at the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And look, abortion is going to be abortion rights are going to be on the ballot for the foreseeable future. That's mm -hmm. just I mean, it is it is very unfortunate that that is the case. But that's the reality. That is the reality. If you know, if. um if let's say Democrats lose the midterm, all of this discussion of a row law becomes moot. At that point, you will have Congress in the hands of the Republicans. And if 
a Republican president is elected in 2024, abortion will be outlawed nationwide. So it will be on the ballot again. And if Democrats win, it'll be, you know, it is going to be on the ballot every time. It's going to be, it's going to be high stakes into the future. And I suspect over time, since a substantial majority of the population supports base, you know, the basic row bundle of abortion rights, that eventually I think Republicans will give that one up. But will they? No idea. You have right. to live in the here and now, and that's mm-hmm. what you have to do. Yep. Okay. So uh, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Let me also thank you again, uh, all 2,500 TPM readers who contributed during our drive. Uh, We hit the goal, $200,000. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it, all of us here. And uh, I think that's it. All right. We'll see you next week. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader